0: The Advent Christmas season is one of my favorite seasons of the year, and we're still two weeks away from starting our Advent series. But this morning, this text gives us a great opportunity to briefly look at some of the gospel accounts of the birth of, of Jesus. I'm going to also break another unspoken tradition this morning, a tradition of no Christmas music before Thanksgiving. I'm breaking it. Because it's always so ironic to me, what's always so ironic to me is that the great hymns of Christmas are played in the malls all season long, and people sing them and enjoy them, and they either just don't believe a lick of what they're saying, or they never actually stopped to think about it, the gravity of some of these songs. One of my favorites, and probably one of the most epic, is from Handel's Messiah, right? Right? King of kings forever and ever. And Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords forever and ever. Alleluia, alleluia. And he shall reign forever and ever. And he shall reign forever and ever. Where does this idea come from? The idea that there is a king who is the Lord, who will reign forever and ever. There are many places that we could turn to, especially in the Psalms, but if we wanted to look at the quintessential text, we would look at our text this morning, Second Samuel chapter 7. We know that, as we've said before, as we're going through this series looking at the life of David, that there is more material about David than any other ancient figure, even outside of the Bible. There's more material about David than any other figure, and this scene in David's life, in Second Samuel chapter 7, this scene is setting something in motion that is absolutely crucial in understanding who Jesus Christ is. Why, you say? Just look at the opening of Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 starts like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. When the announcement comes to uh, the women, it says that this will be done to you in the city of David. The fact that Jesus Christ is the son of David is absolutely crucial into understanding who he is. And it's absolutely crucial to understanding the storyline of the Bible. So let's look at our, let's read our text this morning. Second Samuel chapter 7 verses 1 to 17. And we'll unpack why that is. is. Second Samuel chapter 7 starting in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that night... That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, why would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for your word to us. Father, we know that in your perfect and sovereign purposes, you've revealed to us the things that we need to know for life and godliness in the holy scriptures. We pray, Lord, as we look at this text and we consider David the king and your promise to him, We pray that our hearts would be engaged and enlightened with the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would see the massive grace that is in this text, and that our hearts would be kindled to love Jesus all the more as we leave this place today, Lord, we ask great things, and they can only be done if you pour your spirit upon us this morning. So we ask that your spirit would fall on us this morning. I ask that you'd help me as I preach. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Two points. This morning, two points, and then some longer implications. So, point one will be the God of tents, the God of tents, and point two will be the God of grace, and then some application. Point one: the God of tents. But look at verse one to three again. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, "See now, I dwell in a house of cedar." But the ark of God dwells in a tent. So what's going on here? So David is experiencing a success as a king. There's, there's, there's rest from his enemies. He's victorious in battle. Uh, his, his people are experiencing rest and peace. Uh, there, there isn't as much turmoil in, in the land as there once was. It says they have rest from their enemies. And then the text also lets us know that the king's doing well for himself. He's doing well for himself. He's, he's built a house for himself. It says in verse 2. And it says it's a house of, of cedar. So moreover, did he not only build a house for himself, he built a beautiful house for himself. A palace. It says it's built with cedar. This likely means that the, that the walls were, were paneled with this beautiful, fragrant, expensive, costly wood. And so David is sort of surveying the scene, you know, things are going well. You know, he's kind of looking out over everything. There's prosperity, there's peace, and he has this chat with Nathan. Nathan's a prophet. So, one commentator who is pretty vivid with his language, Dale Rouse Davis, envisions a scene like this. He says, I can envision the scene. Maybe it's after dinner. Nathan and David are standing on an upstairs balcony of this beautiful new palace. They're surveying the palace grounds. They're overlooking the peace of Israel, drinking a cup of decaf coffee. (laughs) Feeling pretty good about themselves. And they're talking about things. They're dreaming about the future. And David says to his pastor, Nathan, Hey, I'd like to build the church a new building. It's not right that I have this big, nice house and God is dwelling in that old tent. So I'm going to donate everything, and we're going to build a house for God. And Nathan, like any good pastor, says, go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. (laughs) And we can relate, of course. All these years, hundreds of years since Moses, and God and the Ark of the Covenant, which we looked at last week, is dwelling inside the tabernacle. The ark's been brought to Jerusalem. He, 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 David has gone to Abinadab's house. He's brought it up to Jerusalem. It's in Jerusalem. But the ark is still dwelling in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is this tent. And it's designed, the tabernacle was designed to be mobile because God's people were on the move, God's people were mobile. It was designed so that while they were exiled and without a home and they were, they were wandering in the wilderness, God would still dwell among them. The God is the God of tents. God is on the move. He dwells among his people. But by now, commentators even suggest that the tent was getting old. and it's, The tent itself, the tabernacle, the material itself was a couple hundred years old at this point. And David thinks it's time for an upgrade. But verse 4, that night, Nathan has a dream, and the Lord speaks to him. And in verses 5 to 7, we have one, and in verses 8 to 9, we'll have point two. So 5 to 7, but that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought the people up out of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I've commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built me a house? God says, why do you want to build me a house, David? Did I ever ask for one? Did I ever ask the judges to build me a house? Did I ever chastise them for not building me a house? No. God says, I've been moving, verse 6 and 7, I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel. It's intentional. That's the first principle here, that God is a God of tents, which is just a clever way of saying is that God is a God that dwells with his people. God is an incarnate God. God is on the move and he moves about with his people. It means also that he identifies with them. When they're poor and suffering, he's identifying with them and dwelling with them as they're poor and suffering. It means he experiences, he shares in the experiences of his people. And since he's saying he can't settle down while his people are still unsettled. While his people are poor and wandering, he is poor and wandering with them. And this God is unlike any other God. This God of tents, this God who dwells, this God who's incarnate God is not like any of the other gods in any other religion. You know, another... Name for this point could be the God of humility. The God of humility is astounding to us. It's astounding to David. He says, how can I dwell in this house of cedar? But you, God, the God of everything, the God who created the cosmos, the God who spoke the world into existence, how can you dwell in a tent? The humility of it is just astounding to David. Remember Peter as well. Peter's astounded by the humility of God. Remember the scene in John's gospel in the upper room in John 13 after dinner, the night of the Passover, the night that Jesus was to die. It says in John 13, that Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and he took on a towel. He tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he was going down the line, and he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. See, the washing of the feet of the disciples is a mere shadow. It's a pale picture. It's a, it's a microcosm of what Jesus is going to do for them. In the betrayal later that night, and on the cross the next day, it means that Jesus must serve them if they're going to have any share with him. If they're going to partake with him at all, he must serve them to the bitter end. They cannot contribute anything to becoming his disciple. The only possible way, the only way is for him to serve them, and the only possible way is for him to serve you and I to the very end. We contribute nothing to his saving work in our lives. Which leads us to our second point, which we're halfway into already, the God of grace. You see it in verse eight and nine. Now, therefore, you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off from you all your enemies from before you. And I will make your name great, like the great ones of the earth. You see what God's saying? saying, God saying, before me, you were just a shepherd of the sheep. Before me, you were just in the pasture. And without me, you still would be. Don't you know, God saying, that everything that you have is because I gave it to you. Everything you have is because of my sovereign, gracious, kind purposes in your life, David. You can't give me anything because I have given you everything. Your success is only because of me. Your success is only because of my grace in your house. And you know what? Moreover, David, the grace has just begun. Because not only are you not going to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. Because God's favor is never achieved, God's favor is always received. It's never achieved. It's never achieved by the work of our own hands. His favor in your life is only because of the sovereign, gracious work of the Lord Jesus in your place and on your behalf. There is nothing you can do right now to make God delight in you more. That almost sounds like heresy, doesn't it? There is nothing that you can do for God to delight in you more. Everything in your life. All of his love, his grace, his purposes are absolutely received. They're his sovereign, gracious, loving hand. Now you see the tone here I find interesting. The tone here from God is is a fairly strong tone, isn't it? It's, It's fairly interesting to note that David needs to be rebuked to remember that everything is of grace. He needs a loving rebuke to re- be reminded of how deeply loved he is. And we need that too. Sometimes we need to be told that, like that, 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 that Bob Newhart version of counseling, just stop it. Just stop. Don't you know that the love of God towards you is only and absolutely because of Jesus Christ in your place and on your behalf? Stop your striving. Stop jockeying for positions. Stop jockeying to see if he could love you more. He already has loved you to the bitter end. How will he not graciously give you all things? Your life is sheer grace. Everything that you have, every breath that you took, the last breath that you took, the last bit of food that you had, the fact that you're here today is because of the free grace of God given to you in Jesus Christ. One commentator, David Peterson, Eugene Peterson Maybe if I said David Peterson, you'd respect him more. (laughs) says this, David was about to cross a line of instead of being full of God, he would be full of himself. He was heady with success and started to think he could do God a favor. If any of us develop an identity in which God's grace is less important to who we are, then our ability to represent God's kingdom is utterly ruined. David is the representative. He's the king. He's the one who represents Israel. And Israel was to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. And the way that they would do that was they would show that the sovereign, gracious love of God has chosen this people, Israel. We read in Deuteronomy, right, that that God simply set his love on Israel because he did. It's not that he saw something in them that, that, that somehow garnered his favor or his love to them. He loved them because he loved them. And the same is true with us. The same is true as Paul will tell us that God has set his sovereign purposes on you. He has saved you. He has chose you from the fore from the, from the of the foundation of the world to achieve his sovereign purposes in election. He simply loves you because he loves you. He chose you because he chose you, because he's God and he does what he pleases and he's gracious and he's merciful to you. And this is a warning to us. To repeat Peterson, if any of us develop an identity in which God's grace is less important to who we are, then we lose our ability to represent God's kingdom. You realize, in Matthew chapter 26, 27, and 28, the last time that Peter and the disciples see Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? So the last time, when they, they, were, they were asleep, while, when he was asking them to pray, Peter, Jesus tells Peter, you're gonna deny me three times before, before morning. Peter says, no way, no way. The trial happens. We know Peter's standing outside, Matthew's gospel tells us, and he denies him, and he denies him, and he denies him. The next time, the next time that Jesus sees his disciples is at the Great Commission. It's at the Great Commission. He commissions those who betrayed him, who left him at the final hour, who should have been there for him. And he lavishes them with love and forgiveness. And he says, go be my witnesses. Go tell of what God in Christ has done for you. And the same is true of us. When he called us, we were his enemies. When he called us, we were, we were running the other direction from him. And from the beginning to the end, all of our life is now just his sheer grace. But there's the tendency for us to slip back into this form of legalism. To slip back into this form of, I can do it. God needs me to somehow contribute to this. But we lose our ability to represent him. When we don't rely and we don't remember But all of our life is because of his grace. When God is offered a house, David is offering him a literal building. But God's promise to David in verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, is not a literal house. God is saying that I will make you a dynasty. God is saying that from you and from your line will become a Davidic dynasty, a kingly dynasty. And he describes this this dynasty as as sure. And he says three things, three things will not not keep my promise from you, to you, from ceasing. He says it's not going to be stopped by death. He says it won't even be stopped by time. And he says it won't even be stopped by sin. Not death, not time, or sin. He says when you... When, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, death, I will raise up from your offspring, one who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Time, verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish his kingdom forever. And sin, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sun of men. Death won't stop it. Time won't stop it. Sin won't even stop it. How could this be, we ask ourselves? How could this possibly be that that not death, not time, or sin could stop this covenant, could stop this awesome promise that God is giving to David? Do you understand the storyline of the Bible? The storyline of the Bible is that God made the world and everything in it And out of the overflow of his love that he had within himself, the triune God, perfectly existing father, son, spirit from eternity past, in perfect unity with one another. That overflow of love created the world and created you and I. God made us in his own image that we might share in the divine nature. That we might uh, have that same kind of relationship with the triune God that he has within himself. But we rebelled. We turned from God. And this turning from God is the reason that there's sickness, that there's death, that there's sin, that there's racism, that there's, that there's all, the, all the iniquities that we experience under the sun. Because we turn from God. But God, in his gracious and loving purposes, said that I will send one to you who will redeem the world, who will pay the penalty for sin, that I might establish my reign on the earth again. And God begins to picture himself and to, and, to, and to portray himself as a king. In the Psalms, again and again, the, the, the God himself is showing himself to be one who reigns. Psalm 98 verse 6 says that the Lord is king over all. So he makes this promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That one will come from you whose kingdom will be forever. It will never cease. Death won't stop it. Sin won't stop it. And we get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And we see that Jesus Christ is the son of David. He is the rightful king of Israel. King of kings and Lord of lords, forever and ever he shall reign. So let's talk about a few applications for what this means for our life. First, tomorrow, this week's Thanksgiving. This week is Thanksgiving. We read Isaiah 55 this morning in our scripture reading. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not s- satisfied? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Because of the love that God has, and the promise that God made to David, he's saying to the people of Israel, rejoice, rejoice. And he's using food as an illustration for the great inner delight and the great inner thanksgiving that is available to us because of what God has done for us in Christ. So this Thursday, when you're at the table and you're eating and you're celebrating, remember that God is saying everything that your heart longs for, everything that your heart desires, everything that you need, your security, your satisfaction, your comfort, your control is given to you freely in Christ. And when you eat that piece of turkey and you eat that scoop of mashed potatoes, remember, remember it's a picture. It's a picture of free grace and the love that you have in Jesus Christ. Second, what this means, we didn't read the second half of the passage here from verses 18 to 29, but you see something dramatically change in David. The second application is it should dramatically change our prayer life. You see in the beginning here, And up in verse 2, he's speaking about God uh, not in the first or second person. But when you get to 18 through 29, he addresses God 17 different times. He addresses God personally. When he sees that everything that he has is sheer grace, and he sees that God is a God of tents who dwells with his people, it radically and dramatically changes the way that he prays. He says things like, because of your promise, because according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you. According to all that you have done, we've heard with our ears. That's how David prays when he sees, when he sees the radical grace that God has given him. When he realizes that I was just in the pasture. I was just tending sheep. God did all this. And my friends, when you see it in your own heart, in your own life, it should radically change the way that you pray. A deep gratitude to God. One of my favorite hymns is John Newton. He says, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. His grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. None can ever ask too much third thing it should do is it should give you hope. The hope of the coming kingdom. You know, the image of God reigning throughout the Bible and throughout the Psalms is an image of great hope to God's people. Listen to Psalm 93. It says, The Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He's put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 98, as I mentioned a moment ago, verses four to six, says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, break forth into joyous song and sing praises, sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre, And the sound of melody, what trumpets and the sound of the horde make a joyful noise before the King the Lord. There's hope, my friends, that the kingdom is coming. You know what else that means? This is sort of application 3.5. That the world as we know it, the world as we know it is going to be renewed, and God is going to come and dwell here, and he's going to reign here, and he's going to live with us forever. It means that the gospel isn't just an individual reality. Yes, God has come to you in Jesus Christ. He saved you. He's redeemed you. But secondly, it means, though, that the gospel is corporate. It means that God is the king. It means that he's bringing his rule and his reign over all the earth. Not just in your life, but over all the earth. Which means that there's dramatic and radical implications for how we live in the world around us. It's not just all going to burn up in a heap and we're going to float in heaven with, with like angel wings or something. We're going to reign and rule on, the, on a renewed earth with God forever. That matters then in how we relate to our neighbor. It matters then in how we think about the poor around us. It matters in how we think about now that we're at Lentz Baptist and we're on 88th and Woodstock, what does it mean for the gospel witness to the community around us there? Because the gospel isn't just an individual reality. It's a corporate reality about the reign and rule and kingship of God being made known on the earth. It should have radical and dramatic implications for our lives and the way that we relate to other people. Well, fifth implication, fifth implication is that I need to ask you, and the elders need to ask you for prayer. As we preach, and I preach from this pulpit week in and week out, that we ought to be a radical community of forgiveness. And reconciliation. And that our lives and the way that we relate to each other ought to be a picture of the gospel. And there has been conflict among the five gathering elders. Not so much the new elders from Lentz that have come in. We haven't, we haven't tainted them yet. But there has been conflict and underlying issues in our relationship for a couple years. And this coming Tuesday, we're sitting down and we've asked some brothers outside the church to help us talk through these issues so that we can be reconciled to one another. And we realized it, became, it came rushing home to us as we thought about merging with Lentz and bringing these other elders into the team and thinking, we have to deal with this. We can't ask these brothers to be part of a team that isn't healthy and there's issues among us. And our vision, the elders' vision from day one, has always been that the eldership would be a microcosm of the whole church, that we can't ask the church to be something that we first aren't ourselves, that we aren't examples in ourselves. We can't preach reconciliation and forgiveness and and, and walking side by side with one another if we don't do it ourselves. We're lost from the start if that's the case. So pray for us. Pray for us today, tomorrow, and particularly on Tuesday, that God would bring about radical forgiveness and reconciliation among the relationships on the elder team. In fact, this is, I think, the Spirit speaking right now. Can we fast as a church on Tuesday? Just ask that God would break into our lives in a radical way. That we would experience the free grace of God that's given to us in Jesus Christ. Listen to, listen to these two verses. This is David's prayer of gratitude. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this is a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this instruction for mankind, O Lord God. David is just utterly humbled at what God is doing in his life. And the gospel should have a radical, humbling effect in all of our lives. In my life, in Severin's life, in Chris's life, in Dan's life, in Matt's life. So when we see the radical grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ that we've been brought in, that we've been brought near, that we've been forgiven of iniquity that's worthy of hell, we should be able to forgive one another. We should be able to walk in newness of life. So would you fast with us on Tuesday? And then we can celebrate, Lord willing, with the Thanksgiving meal on Thursday. I didn't just invite you all over to my house for Thanksgiving. I just want to <laughs> clarify. So let me close with these last two points. We're going to circle back to the God intense and the God of grace. And that is, if God is going to make a promise like this to King David, there's the nagging thought in the back of your head saying, Okay, God, yeah, you dwelled with your people Israel as you dwelled, your glory dwelled above the ark. But you didn't really enter into their suffering. You didn't really dwell among them. Your presence was above the ark, but you were in the comforts of heaven. If God was going to make those kinds of promises, then he actually one day did have to dwell with his people. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That word there for dwell is the Greek word skene. And that word means tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And God is the God of tents. He is the God of dwelling. He is the God that became incarnate and walked among us and literally and actually suffered the things that we suffered. Hebrews says that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one whom in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is a God who has come radically, intimately near to us in the God-man, Jesus Christ. He dwelled among you. He dwelled among us. He knows what it is to be a human being. He knows what it is to be forsaken by his friends. He knows what it is to be misunderstood. He knows what it is for people to not forgive him. He knows what it is to be an outcast. Foxes have holes, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He knows what it is to be lonely and to wander. And second, if God is going to be gracious, like this to David, then the question, the nagging question should be, God must be a righteous and just God. What do you mean his promises aren't thwarted by sin, Matthew? There is a dramatic verse in this text. Second Samuel seven fourteen. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. If Jesus the God-man, if Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, if Jesus the true king of Israel is going to establish his throne, is going to reign forever, then the penalty for sin itself, the consequences for sin itself are laid on the true king when he commits iniquity. Those words seem so strong to us. It's almost as if we could say that the Lord Jesus experienced imputed iniquity to him. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The wrath of God, the iniquity of the kings of Israel, the iniquity of you and me, was placed on Jesus Christ, the rightful king of Israel. So that through him, through his substitutionary death in your place, the iniquity, the wrath that you deserved, the separation from God forever in hell that you deserved was placed on Jesus instead. So that in him, you can now become the righteousness of God. In Jesus, the true king, the true king of Israel, we see that God does dwell with his people. He is the God of tents, he is the God of dwelling, and he is the God of grace. He gives himself to us in Jesus, paying the penalty for sin that we can be brought back and made right with God. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. And we ask for your help, God. We ask for your help that we would our lives would be marked by thanksgiving, our lives would be marked by gratitude, our lives would be marked by dwelling and living in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask for your help in Jesus' name, amen.